Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we've got Alex Bush. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A uh, quick shout out about the Clean Coders podcast, which we just launched today as we record this. Um, first episode is with Uncle Bob Martin. We talked about agile development, so go check it out. We have a special guest this week, and that is Andre Volodin. I hope I got close on your name. I'm sorry if I didn't. Yeah, that's all right. Hello, everybody. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Do, do you want to tell us how to say your name and then uh, introduce yourself real quick? Uh, I guess in English, it's, it should be Andre, Andre Volodin. Yeah, that's, that's my name. So I'm an iOS developer, but not kind of a regular one. I've been doing iOS development for maybe seven years now, and I barely touched UI kit in my career ever. So I've started as a, a lead uh, engineer behind Cocos uh, 2D, and I was a maintainer of the open source game engine. And then I uh, started to work with Prisma and uh, mostly focusing on porting machine learning and computer vision algorithms onto mobile. Back in the day, I've also ported uh, a Swift uh, game engine to Android, but that's maybe another story, not for today. Yeah. And, and I was a developer who hasn't worked with UIKit much. You're very blessed, sir. <laughs> no, I, I actually I hit it um, more or less, uh, but um, maybe 95% of my career went without UIKit. Yeah. Awesome. And you said you maintained Cocos 2D? Yeah, the uh, Objective-C uh, version of it. Oh, okay. So is there a Swift version now? Uh, I actually, I, I started it back in the day. It's called Fiber 2D. It's going to rewrite, but with fresh ideas on it. And uh -huh. uh, we also uh, designed it to be cross-platform. So it was the first Swift uh, engine that worked on Android and also on Linux and Windows and uh, Mac OS, so ev basically everywhere. But currently, uh, it seems that there is now a big demand for uh, small open source gaming giants because people have Unity, they have Godot, they have Unreal Engine. And uh, from Apple, we got SpriteKit, which basically kind of copies the Cocos 2D design and approaches. So... Um, the whole, I think the whole market for open source gaming giants are kind of dead right now on iOS. Yeah. So I've switched up to mobile machine learning uh, engineer and high performance stuff. Interesting. So yeah, kind of, I, I just want to geek out. It's like, oh, we get to play with game engines and graphic <laughs> engines. And anyway, it's, it's cool stuff. This is yeah. the stuff that I've always wanted to do, but never actually made myself learn how to do. 
Yeah, it's it's very rare, and it's it works both sides. So it's uh, uh, guys who do it are really rare in the market, but also very few companies need those skills. Right. So I think the whole industry is kind of underdeveloped because of low. But we in Prisma have like very good chemistry because we do very hardcore on-device photo editing with a lot of machine learning and computer vision and AR. So it's a very good blend of intersection. Gotcha. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Alex. I was just like, this is the kind of stuff that makes me excited. So I know, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking through it as well. It's, I never got to learn it either. That's, that's not what they pay me for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so you guys have something like, I, I think... I don't know much about game development, right? The, the, the things I do know is, uh, what's that? Unity is the, the cross-platform thing for yeah. everything. So your guys kind of not a branch from that, right? Uh, no, really. Uh, actually, uh, I think game development on iOS is basically like dominated by Unity right now because uh, everything else is, well, SpriteKit may be too oriented for iOS, so uh, it's hard to for developers to to then make a full rewrite from uh, SpriteKit to other platforms. Uh, back in the day when we were developing uh, Coco Studio, there were a thing called Sprite Builder, and the company behind that it was called App Portable. What they did, they uh, kind of provided the Objective C interface of foundation and related libraries for Android, so you can could port. Uh, the Coco Studio game on Android as well. But uh, basically what they had to do is kind of get the headers from the Apple's frameworks and kind of re-implement the whole thing. And around maybe iOS 9, they just realized they can't keep up with the Apple doing like a lot of stuff. So they just went bankrupted. And uh, after they stopped supporting the Android plugin, Coco Studio became like a solely uh, iOS uh, game engine. Mm -hmm. And also it was written in Objective-C, which is, was kind of already kind of old at that time. So it's made the whole thing kind of dead by now. Awesome. So uh, we brought you on to talk about Metal. Yeah. Um, and it was your talk um, at, I can't remember, this is the iOS yes. Conf SG. Yeah. And yeah. You were talking about, yeah, explain Metal to me like I'm five. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, does Cocos 2D take advantage of Metal on iOS or are the two not, strictly speaking, related? Yeah, yeah, actually, I think Cocos 2D was one of the first open source project um, that kind of embraced Metal in a very hard way because actually even to this day, I think Metal was re uh, released like five years ago. Uh, even to this day, it's not very popular in terms of open source uh, examples or maybe uh, tutorials or stuff. There are some great ones like metalbyexample.com and some others, but still it's kind of underrepresented. And Coco Studio was first, uh, I think the first game engine who supported Metal in open source. And uh, it was a fairly good support. It was uh, a bit limited to our OpenGL implementation, but it's still... Uh, could uh, allow you to do decent game with metal. Yeah. So can can you clarify for me? I, I, I'm not familiar with it. So metal. I mean, I I 
know that the metal is the low-level technology, Apple technology for, well, I guess, low-level things such as game development. But like, where does it stand in terms of like hierarchy of frameworks? Is it on the same level as UIKit or it's below it and UIKit is using it? Uh, OpenGL, where, where that stands as well? Yeah, so uh, I think uh, it's, it's definitely under UIKit. I don't know how much UIKit uses it, though. So we, we know for sure that some of the parts of UIKit use it, like MapKit stuff, like for map rendering uh, and some others. But I think it's still not fully ported to Metal from my side. It's just my opinion. I don't know for, for, for real. So what Metal is, is uh, a successor to OpenGL. And what OpenGL is, is a standard for vendors to implement GPU APIs. So uh, iPhone has a uh, kind of dedicated GPUs, it's physically different device installed into your phone that can work parallelly to the CPU. Uh, and the main kind of difference between how GPU works and uh, how CPU work is that the GPU is massively parallel. So, uh, like mostly it is used for rendering, especially like back in the day. But now GPUs are kind of taking advantage of stuff like machine learning on device because it's mm -hmm. highly parallelizable, right? Uh, also, the uh, what GPU can be used is for maybe uh, cryptocurrency money and solving just some maybe computer vision stuff. So yeah, the the reason they like it for cryptocurrency is because, like you said, you can run multiple things on it at a, at a time, and essentially mining boils down to guessing the right. Um, I think it's a nonce. I can't remember the exact term, but the right random number in there to get the right hash yeah. out the other end. And so yeah, there's no right. other way other than brute force. And so you need, yet yeah, you need to be guessing as many as fast as you can. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe mobile GPUs aren't the best, uh, especially today for um, cryptocurrency mining. I think maybe in 2006, you could mine a lot with iPhone, but not today. So... Um, yeah, but uh, actually, I got to say that in Prisma, we barely use GPU for rendering. So most of the things we write is actually general purpose computing uh, just for algorithm acceleration, and not for 3D rendering in any way. We use it for rendering a bit, but this is like rare cases. Yeah. Nice. So given the GPU's capabilities, how does Metal give you access to it? So uh, Metal is designed to be kind of a bit lower um, uh, overhead than OpenGL has. And uh, also it's uh, a bit more modern than what OpenGL provided because OpenGL had a C-based API. So it's just a bunch of global functions that you have to operate with. And Metal provides you a kind of modern object-oriented API, which uh, kind of represents, you, you can get uh, uh, links to m multiple GPUs, uh, you can encode comments, you can, you can have fine control over your GPU states and also how they synchronize with the CPU, because uh, I think most of developers underappreciate that actually iPhone has not even two, but three devices to program, right? So we have CPU for programming like our Swift code or C code or C++ code. We have GPU that we can program with metal. And also we have 
got NPU, maybe like two iPhone model right now to uh, utilize it for machine learning, mostly with CoreML because Apple don't give you uh, an API for NPU directly. But yeah, this is a physically different device. Uh, and this is important to keep in mind because actually you have more juice in your device that you think you have, right? When you're a regular developer. And Metal basically allows you to kind of get full advantage of it and program GPU to kind of work parallelly with your CPU. So is that only, <clears throat> it's only useful for game development or, or kind of other apps can take advantage of it? Uh, I think currently Metal is mostly used for uh, game development, but uh, there are definitely applications, like I said, that can take advantage of it. For example, both of our apps, Prisma and Lenza, uh, are photo editors that have a strong focus on machine learning. And the key principle that we uh, try to keep is that everything uh, we do with our neural nets is happens on device. So we don't send your photos uh, like many apps out there to our servers. Uh, and it works 100% online and even in real time. So we have like a video mode where you can turn the camera on and see like a live preview of the results that you will have. And this is a very, very challenging uh, problems because you have to kind of balance between the quality of neural net and its size and inference time. And GPUs are kind of essential thing for it to be run faster because GPUs can accelerate a regular neural net for like 10 times. So it's like huge difference between what you can do with CPU and with GPU. Other applications outside of photo editors, I think uh, something with uh, audio processing. They mostly use a high performance framework called Accelerate. Maybe you heard of it. This is for IRM uh, Neon programming on iOS. But um, a lot of companies now experimenting with uh, using GPU for accelerating uh, audio processing. Yeah, so it's definitely not limited to games. When you say audio processing, you mean like recording, like what AV Foundation does or something else? Not only. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of startups currently that hit uh, market with, for example, neural net generated music. So there are neural nets who can generate like maybe electronic music for your liking. Or maybe it's uh, programs like Logic that uh, apply certain effects on uh, sounds like distortion or reverb. All of those things are more or less friendly to be parallelized on a GPU. So even though it's still called graphics processing unit, it actually can be used for a lot of stuff. So does that mean that um, I forgot the name of that f uh, framework. It's open source cross-platform for uh, audio. Like you convert files with it. Um, FFmpeg? Yeah, yeah, FFmpeg, yeah, yeah. Right, so I know it's ported for Swift as well, or rather it has an API, Swift API to the C++ thingy, that's the actual code of it, right, binary. Is, does that mean libraries like that use GPU under the hood? Because they're definitely not going through AV Foundation for their work, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, FFmpeg does that. 
I actually doubt that. I think that what they use is IRAM uh, instructions on CPU in order to make um, processing faster but with CPU parallelization. Uh, but uh, I, I know for sure that other commercial companies really do use uh, Metal 4. And also, uh, it, there is a rise of AR application, and Metal can be your friend there because when you want to render very custom effects, like uh, I have a friend uh, who runs a company, and they use Metal to analyze the size of your shoe and then uh, offer your sneakers that will fit perfectly. So there are a lot of applications for that. Interesting. So one of the things you're talking about here is a neural net that's built on metal that uses the GPU. So one thing I'm curious about is, does CoreML actually take advantage of this at all? Yeah, but uh, the thing about CoreML is that it's a very, very high-level API. Uh, and CoreML has some uh, unbeatable advantages right now. It's uh, simplicity. So if you have a pre-built model that you've downloaded anywhere, or maybe the, your R&D team prepared it for you, it's extremely easy for any developer uh, to integrate it. It's uh, just a drag and drop into your Xcode project, call a single line model.prediction, and that's it. You, you've got the... Uh, output of your neural net. But um, since CoreML is a high-level API, it kind of hides a lot of details from you. Uh, and for some application, it doesn't really matter. But uh, if you need a really fine-grained control of what happens to your data, and you want to control the uh, CPU, GPU overhead, I will try to explain what is that. So uh, CoreML internally does use GPU. And it can also use CPU and NPU, but uh, and you kind of get a control over that. But most most of the models still run on GPU. Uh, so in order to kind of pass memory from CPU to GPU side, the system kind of has to copy it uh, from uh, CPU format that you have on Swift. It's uh, mostly CV pixel buffer if you're talking about images. Then it internally converts it to MTL texture, which is a representation of image data in metal. Then it runs metal graph. And then in order for you to get the results back uh, in Swift, it has to kind of copy it back to the new CV pixel buffer and return it. And that's mostly fine uh, if running neural net is the only thing you want to do. But uh, when you write some complex pipelines, that, for example, uh, Lenza runs 16 neural nets under the hood. And it's mixed with uh, a fair good portion of computer vision algorithms in between. So if you would uh, kind of uh, move data back and forth between CPU and GPU, there will be a lot of overhead. So in, in cases like that, you want to kind of have full control over your GPU pipeline. So your data is uh, fluid by uh, your operations without hitting the CPU. So you only copy your image once before all of the hard work, then you encode a huge pipeline, and then it ends with a new MTEL texture, and you copy it once back to the CPU. This is especially uh, critical for live previews because you only have 16 milliseconds to run all of your heavy stuff, uh, and you have to kind of get control. 
So yeah, Coromel still uses metal or something like that under the hood, but uh, it's just not enough for very fine grain and high performance uh, implementation. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv jobbook. That's devchat.tv jobbook. So how, how developers <clears throat> sort of, what's the, what's the thinking process for, for, for a developer to kind of utilize these technologies or not, right? What, at what point do I need to think about those problems, I guess? Like only when I have a, an application that's, as you, as you mentioned, that does some um, image processing operations, right? Or, or there are another kind of cases where I could make that decision? So yeah, uh, the thing is that uh, image uh, processing is just very popular on uh, GPU because it's very friendly to parallelization, right? Because you can process, most of the time, you can process each pixel independently of other pixels. For example, when you make your application more bright or more contrast, like, like filters in Instagram, you can process every pixel independently. So you run individual thread on a GPU for each pixel and can, the whole picture can be processed parallelly if the GPU supports as much threads. But generally, uh, you can uh, apply GPU for more or less any uh, problem. But what you have to do is analyze it first for whether or not it is parallelizable. So, uh, for example, if you have a for loop, which depends on a previous iteration. So every iteration depends on the previous one. It's definitely not going to be portable to GPU because what GPU needs is kind of a bunch of data that can be processed independently. Like each chunk can be processed independently. So first what you, what you usually do is you hit the whiteboard you kind of hit the graph of your dependencies. So, okay, I have a, this CPU algorithm. Can I port it to GPU? And uh, you just start to write in variables and then uh, write the process of interaction of them between each other. And if you see that, like, very red flags for uh, GPU porting is like when you have semaphores, mutexes, or uh, maybe if conditions inside uh, for loops. So this is just, uh, w when you have any kind of synchronization between what you do, this is definitely not going to be an easy uh, port to GPU. But if, for example, you're doing operations like calculate, like multiply every element of array by two, right? And you have like a 1 million uh, elements in that, that array. So in CPU, you will have to wait each of those iterations. But in GPU, you can kind of encode it, do it in parallel. So it can give you maybe 32 times more faster processing, depending on how many threads uh, the, your GPU has. So you got to first 
analyze whether or not your problem is applicable for GPU programming. And also, it uh, also happens that sometimes you have an algorithm which has a first part, which is portable on a uh, GPU, and the second part is also. But in, in between, you have a very, very tiny, specific one line of code that has to be run synchronously on a CPU, and then can ruin the whole thing. So because if you will uh, move your data to GPU, then to execute that single one line, you will have to put it back on a CPU, then you have to put it back on a GPU to kind of continue and then get it back to present to user. That can uh, introduce so many like overheads that it sometimes maybe there is a situation where it's not reasonable because the overhead kind of uh, neglects what you want in terms of performance on a GPU. How does technically putting it on GPU and off of it happens? Like <clears throat> sort of from a Swift code perspective in your typical UI, uh, UI kit based iOS application? Yeah, so uh, the, the thing is, it's important to understand that GPUs are very, very dumb devices. So they are designed to basically do three things. I used to draw triangles, draw lines, and draw points. And also, uh, they are specifically designed to be used with floats. So, for example, the iOS GPU doesn't support doubles. Some desktop GPUs do support double processing, but, but you have to use float most of the time. And also, uh, GPUs uh, don't have such an abstraction like operating system. So you don't have any kind of uh, classes there or uh, threads, processes, uh, logs. You, you just don't get it. Uh, it's a very, very highly specialized hardware uh, that you uh, can use for like very, on a very low level. And uh, the way you program the GPU uh, itself, uh, you do it in shaders. Shaders are very tiny programs that are designed to be run on an individual piece of data. So instead of running a for loop, you just kind of write the body of the for loop that uses a, an abstract index. And then the GPU will uh, like launch this body on all of the data that you pass on. And the way it works from the Swift side is that uh, since the GPU is physically different device, so Swift can't really uh, control it directly. And the way it works is that you obtain an object from, from the common queue, it's called MTL common buffer. And the MTL common buffer is a kind of package uh, that contains different commons for, uh, for a GPU. So it kind of reminds me of uh, like, you're writing letters from CPU to a GPU and you put different letters there. So your first letter is do this, take this data, copy it here, process it, copy it back there. Then the second letter is take what you got from the first letter, process it in other way and put it uh, in different place. And once you kind of constructed all of the commons on the Swift side, you call a method on common buffer that's called commit. And it's important to understand that when you do it, actually nothing happens in that particular moment. 
what happens is that your kind of set of instructions and uh, letters are sent from CPU to a GPU, and they will be eventually um, executed. Uh, why I say eventually? Because first of all, it takes time to kind of pass um, uh, instructions from CPU to GPU, and also you are not the only one submitting stuff for GPU because Apple does it internally as well. So they utilize GPU for their own frameworks. For example, I don't know, you run your neural net, but at the same time on the screen, you have a map kit view. And what happens is that you and Apple kind of compete for the GPU resources. So you don't really have a guarantee on where, when exactly your programs will start to be uh, start executing. Um, but you uh, can have a callbacks, like when it's scheduled, so it started, and when it's completed, so you can kind of read back the results. And this is what you use most, most of the time. So you just send it somewhere, like a black box from a CPU side, and then you just wait for the callback uh, from Metal API to say, yeah, the GPU is finished, you can grab your data and do whatever you want with it. I'm just wondering if I <laughs> if I can put some heavy heavy computation there, but then every case that I'm thinking of, typically at least with what I'm working with, it's probably some UI kit rendering on the main thread that takes forever that I kind of want to offload, right? But then keep in mind I'm not working on any gaming or any heavy image processing apps or or uh, machine learning apps or anything like that? Yeah, actually, I have an uh, article on the internet. I, I guess it's called Combine the Power of Core Graphics and Metal, something like that. I don't remember mm -hmm. the uh, title completely. So there I uh, describe how you can uh, utilize Metal to, uh, uh, to kind of speed up your off-screen rendering. Because this is often, often the case when you want to render something off screen, like uh, on iOS development, like you have very complex control and you want uh, to pre-render it in a bitmap, like to obtain kind of a UI image and present it as a UI image view. So you don't pay for the very complex draw rect every time the user hits it. In case the draw rect takes too much time, right? Because it's fast, you, you don't really care. Um, and uh, in such cases, you really can use metal for um, to render something very complex, maybe even what you don't know how to render with core graphics, because metal can provide you all of the possibilities from 3D world and from shaders world. So it's, you, you can write very beautiful stuff with only mathematical functions. And then you just, uh, render it into the shared memory, for example, with CG context, and then you can construct a UI image and present it to user. So especially, uh, I guess you should be familiar with stuff like Lottie. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, I know that one. it's a library for launching After Effects on, uh, on iOS. So you, you just export the After Effects animation and then, so uh, there is an implementation on GitHub that actually uses Metal 
for rendering of those animations because it's just a bunch of curves where uh, and, and one thing I remember right now actually sorry it's a bit off topic but there is an awesome library called Slug uh, and the author of that library uh, actually focuses on uh, GPU rendering of fonts the, the the problem right now is since uh, GPUs only work with floats, they are not uh, the precision is not enough to kind of render crisp fonts uh, to present on, on the screen. This is uh, what holds back from rendering from doing uh, vector graphics rendering on uh, uh, GPU because GPU can't do that very crisp round corners that we got on CA layers. And they also can't render the San Francisco font as crisp as uh, Cortex. And there are a lot of researchers, especially in my Twitter feed, uh, actually try to kind of utilize GPU for that. And the slug author um, mentioned in his Twitter that Apple even tried to acquire his company uh, to, but he refused to because he decided to, to be independent. But this kind of shows how important is that. So if there will be a working uh, GPU-based vector graphics solution that can replace core graphics, I think it will give a huge boost in terms of how we can use, for example, SVGs instead of bitmap icons without rasterizing them. Or maybe we can use more dynamic fonts renderings, some timers, etc. Yeah, so it's a very big uh, amount of opportunities there, but it's still kind of early days. People only start to kind of fully look at how to utilize GPUs for vector rendering. So what what's the sweet spot then? Is it the sort of the games and graphical stuff that doesn't need the precision that you're talking about with vector graphics? Or is it something else? Uh, sorry, can you repeat, please? Uh, so what's what's the sweet spot then? You know, because you're saying it's not so great at the kind of precision you need for vector graphics. Uh, yeah. We talked a little bit about AI, but you know, is the sweet spot the kinds of games that you're going to write with OpenGL, or is it something else? Well, the thing is that usually you don't need that kind of precision when you program games. So when you program games, usually, for example, how the fonts rendering done in games is that you kind of get a very big image first, and then you render each letter of your alphabet there. So you, you render A, B, C, D, just in a row. And uh, then, and you do it on the CPU. So you, you use something like free type library to kind of get a very high precision font, uh, render it into image. And then what uh, kind of uh, game engine does, it's, it grabs the uh, rectangles from the images with the, each letter and kind of constructs the label from it. This way, uh, for GPU, it's very fast because uh, in order to render a triangle, or, or sorry, rectangle, you, you only have to draw two triangles, uh, and it works basically fast. The, the, this technique is called bitmap fonts, uh, and a lot of uh, frameworks really support that. So usually there is a combination of, like you do something very high precision on CPU, uh, you maybe put it in some rasterization map, 
then you can reuse it on the GPU. But for other stuff like 3D graphics, those kind of precision is not needed. Uh, usually it's on a much, much less precise rendering is done just because of how 3D graphics works. You don't need that kind of crispness there. Cool. So what does the API look like? Um, well, it's, I don't know how to uh, describe it in podcast, but I'll try. So we've already kind of touched a few uh, entities from there. So let's try to combine them into like a full picture. So you have a core object called MTL device. It represents the physical single GPU. Uh, the thing is that, for example, Meta only works on, uh, also works on macOS, and macOS can have multiple GPUs. So you can have like external GPU that is connected to your MacBook Pro, and MacBook Pro itself can have like multiple GPUs. It can have internal GPUs from Intel, and also the discrete one from AMD, and not not even mentioning the Mac Pro that can have like a bunch of. So for each uh, GPU, the physical GPU, the system will provide you a single object called MTL device. And um, the whole Metal API is kind of a very big dependency injection. So each object that you create there is created out of the objects that you already have. And usually the next object that you create with the API is common queue. So you like the device have a method called make common queue, which gives you uh, a common queue reference of this particular uh, GPU. And from the common queue, you can ask the common buffer. This is the package that we discussed earlier to put your letters on. And when you get the common buffer, it's actually uh, completely uh, empty. So you gotta fill it somehow. Uh, you can fill it with three different types of uh, uh, commons. First of all, it's render commons for rendering triangles, lines, and points. Uh, you can uh, fill it with uh, compute commons. This is general purpose stuff, just whatever you want to put on a parallelization uh, on a GPU. And the third type of commons are bleed. We'll, I guess we'll not cover it today, but this is basically very, very fast copying data so when you like some gaming giants like from the doom uh, this is just a new game uh uses uh, an approach called mega texture where they store like, all of the texture data in a single image and they constantly copy it back and forth force from the cpu so this is what bleed for but uh me as an engineer i'm mostly using compute uh, comments because I mostly program AI and uh, CV on mobile. So in order to put those comments, there are dedicated uh, objects for each of them. And you kind of get the encoder for each comment type from the buffer. So this is like comes through. So each object creates kind of a new one for you to use. And you you get like common buffer dot make comment uh, computer encoder, and then you create, uh, obtain the object that you can use for uh, putting the comments inside. Uh, and the way you use it is that you just set resources there, and also the uh, pipeline state. What pipeline state is, is basically a combination of shaders that you want to use. So you write shaders in the metal chaining language, and then just say, 
I need this function called foo and this function called boo. And then uh, you obtain the pipeline state. You set it as a resource. Uh, and then you just press an encoder. You call something like draw triangles or you call compute uh, this gr uh, grid of threads. And what happens uh, once you call it uh, is actually nothing gets drawn. There is only a single kind of letter of uh, instructions are encoded in the common block. And once you've uh, kind of uh, finished with uh, encoding, you just press end, end encoding on an encoder, and then you call commit on a common buffer. And then the common buffer gets sent to the uh, GPU, and eventually it will be executed. So this is uh, a brief overview on Metal. It's fairly complex, but it's not that hard. It's just a lot of stuff to kind of get look into the first glance. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. jsremoteconf.com. Nice. I, I think I've got enough here to kind of picture how everything hangs together and I could probably go and start hammering on it myself. Um, Alex, do you have any other questions? Anything that I'm not thinking of? Mm, no, I think, yeah, kind of same thing. Not knowing much about it, this this gives me enough to kind of jumpstart, I think. Yeah, yeah actually, I've been uh, developing a library. It's called Alloy. Uh, I guess it's been open sourced for like three years already. Uh, this library basically uh, powers all of the metal code that I write uh, in my daily routines. And it's uh, open source and they're meat licensed. Uh, and I'm uh, very actively supporting it on a GitHub. So the key principle behind this library is that I want it to be extremely friendly to new buys and also to myself because I don't want to write complex uh, programs uh, and to be very swifty, but do not kind of introduce any new concepts outside of what uh, Metal already has. So Alloy doesn't uh, force you to learn anything new outside what you can read in documentation or in, a, in the books. So it barely have any new types introduced, it's just a bunch of extensions. But uh, from my experience, it's a very powerful bunch of extensions because they can transform your sometimes very ugly looking metal cones into very beautiful, uh, clean, small uh, programs that are very easy to read and keep up with, uh, with uh, Swift uh, mechanisms like uh, closures and uh, enums and stuff like that. And I personally think, uh, since I've, uh, I'm leading a team here at Prisma, uh, it's uh, 
my daily routine to kind of onboard people into metal code because it's almost impossible to find uh, guys who have previous background with it. And uh, I find that uh, starting with Alloy really helps a lot. Uh, so just to hide unnecessary details and kind of get focused on uh, what's really important and what are the key things. And at the same time, you didn't pay for it. So this is not a wrapper library that kind of hides the metal from you and just uses as an under the hood. This is the same metal. This is the same level of uh, kind of optimization. You, you get still full control over uh, your pipelines and you still operate with metal types. This is just a better syntax. So if you ever want to kind of try it yourself, I just want to recommend the library for you because I find this this made my code base much better. And I really enjoy writing my stuff with it. I mean, I'm, awesome. I'm briefly glancing at it. It looks pretty accessible. It's just <clears throat> high-level Swift constructs to use, right? Yeah, but this is not... Uh, like, it's high-level language constructs, but not like API high-level. Right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Very cool. Well, if people want to find out more or contact you, where do they go? Um, you mean, uh, sorry. <laughs> like English. online. So GitHub, Twitter. Oh, yeah. I have a Twitter. I guess I've provided the handle, but it's S1DDOK on Twitter. And basically, the GitHub is the same. Nice. Uh, yeah. So you can reach me out. I have some more metal projects. I think we, 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 we can't cover it today, but uh, the other thing I make open source is a project called MTL Swift. It can actually generate all of the Swift code for Metal for you. It's the paradigm that I call shader-driven development. I don't say that's an official name. This is just what <laughs> I came with. The, the thing is, is the tool that kind of hacks into Metal compiler. Uh, it dumps its AST, so abstract syntax tree. It analyzes the shaders that you write, and then it generates the helpful uh, objects that you can use uh, in order to kind of almost eliminate your Swift code for Metal. And the, the, the best thing about it is that since the code is generated, this is super optimized on a very, very low level, but uh, you don't write it as an engineer and you use it like a CI filter. So uh, uh, at some point, especially when the applic my application went too big in terms of shaders and stuff, I realized I need to get something with the code abstraction and cleanness because Metal is not really friendly for writing abstractions around it because you every abstraction is overhead and you don't want to pay any overhead when you write high-performance code. Uh, but when the code is generated, you don't really care because you don't maintain it, you don't read it, you just it's just there. So um, I, I was able to reduce my code base maybe by seventy five percent after introducing it. Oh, nice! And and we use it, it in a it, when when you use it, it it actually may look like a very high level API like core image maybe. But uh, what what really happens is you use high level or low-level APIs in a very, very fast way. So this is just the project I'm really proud of. Uh, and if, 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 if you think that Swift Metal API is maybe intimidating for you, 
try to generate all the stuff. So this is up on GitHub. You can you can check it out. It's called MTL Sweep. Nice. All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and do some picks. Yeah. Can we get a can we get a, a link to that library as well? Sorry, Alex. Were you trying to say something? No, I was gonna say want want me to go first. Yeah. Why don't you go first? So my pick is something that I brought with me from San Francisco. Uh, I don't know if it's actually, maybe it's a national-wide company or not. Red Blossom Tea Company. They have this um, tea, uh, what is it called? Not blend or flavor. The tea, tea sort that I like. That's uh-huh. uh, called Yunnan, Yunnan Pearl. Okay. Fantastic. So it's a uh, black tea. I brew it with a lot of high, high concentration so that I get like every drip of caffeine. Way better than, <laughs> than any coffee. Uh, goes smoother for me personally than, than uh, I can drink a bucket of this, but I cannot drink a bucket of coffee. And gotcha. uh, I call it get stuff done tea. <laughs> <laughs> nice so i highly recommend and they they do uh shipping so i'm just ordered online on their website it's great they have like lots of other selections of tea if you like green more or something else for me it's just pure caffeine so <laughs> that's my right. pick yeah i quit drinking diet sodas and so i'm going through caffeine withdrawals so <laughs> i've been real tired the last couple of days um I'll throw in some picks. So the first one is, is we just launched a new podcast. Um, I mentioned it at the top of the show, but I'm going to plug it here. Uh, we teamed up with Clean Coders, which is a company that was co-founded by Uncle Bob Martin. And uh, the first episode, like I said, is with Uncle Bob. Um, episode three is with Chris Powers, and we talk about um, kind of leveling up and boot camps. And then we get into what Clean Code looks like um, and like principles that go into what makes great code. And then we kind of shifted again when I asked him, okay, how do you get your team on board with all this stuff? And uh, so we went into a whole bunch of leadership stuff too. So that was episode three, comes out on Thursday as we're speaking. Um, So it should already be out by the time you hear this. And then um, I think it was episode four or five, we talked to Eric Critchlow, who's another guy that did a series on clean coders. And he's a native iOS developer and we're, we're working on getting him on as a guest. And uh, anyway, he talked to me a lot about his journey into code. And in particular, what I found interesting was that he has a very um, specific and direct way that he looks at learning and leveling up and the way that he approaches it. And so we dug into a ton of that stuff too. So he does iOS, he also does Android. And uh, yeah, it was a terrific conversation. So those ones are kind of the standouts for me. Um, I also talked to a couple of local guys and they talked about how they organize their teams and work using agile methods and how that works well for them. Um, Probably going to go back and circle back with them because they also have a really interesting story about transitioning from .NET to Go at their company. So anyway, we just met up at a restaurant (laughs) uh, locally and just recorded there. So that was fun. So I'm going to plug those. Um, Doing some workshops. You can find those at devchat.tv slash workshops. That's on finding a job. It's on staying current and Uh, starting a podcast. And then I'm also starting up a mastermind group for developers who want to help each other with their careers. And then finally, I am finishing up the series, The Man in the High Castle on Amazon. 
and I'm really, I've really been enjoying it. This last season has been terrific. Um, I think, I think I see this a lot with, with different series that I've watched where they, they figure out that it's going to be the last season. And so they either do one of two things. They either kind of try and coast it into a comfortable place, which never works, or they, um, they kind of pull out all the stops, figure out what the um, loose ends are that they need to tie up, and then they just go and they wrap up the series on a really solid note that makes you wish there was another season. So it looks like that's what they're doing here. It's been awesome so far. I'm, I think I'm on episode four, and there are usually like 10 episodes in a season. That's the other thing about this whole online series thing is, yeah, it's not 24 episodes that they're trying to figure out what to do with after the 12th. They just go as many episodes as they need to tell the story, and then they quit, and then they make another season, which is also great. So anyway, um, those are my picks. Um, Andre, what are your picks? Yeah, that's, that's a lot. I feel kind of intimidating with it. But, uh, since oh, I yeah, wasn't... sorry. I dumped everything. This is all the stuff I'm working on. <laughs> oh, and a TV show. So sorry. <laughs> yeah, but you have a, a very kind of interesting uh, life. Um, well, well, since I wasn't really prepared, uh, I, I will kind of reuse the fun pick that I used for my talk in Singapore. It's the book uh, called Racing the Beam. Uh, it's the book uh, about development for Atari, a video computer system, by, I guess, Nick Manford and Jan uh, Bogost. So what's uh, described in the book there is uh, how programmers uh, deal with uh, hardware limitations of uh, Atari. Atari uh, only supported uh, five game objects to render, uh, but it's uh, obviously not enough even for a very simple game. Uh, and if you remember, uh, they, they had space invaders there with like a, mm -hmm. hundreds of robots. So the way it worked is that, uh, why the book is called Racing the Beam? Because the TVs back there were constantly uh, scanning the image. And once they scan in the portion of the image, let's call it pixel, but it's not a pixel really back there. Uh, the, those portion of the image were stayed on the screen until kind of the beam of the TV, the electronic beam of TV kind of get, uh, gets the round trip, returns back and redraw. Uh, and the programmers had to move objects in, as the beam goes so that once uh, the beam hits the same object twice, it can, uh, can draw two objects instead of one. And this is a really uh, terrific story on how uh, game developers had to struggle with uh, only five uh, objects and 128 bytes of RAM uh, in order to get their games optimized and look very uh, beautiful. So this is, uh, from my perspective, this is really a must read, especially to kind of appreciate the technology that we have right now, especially in the iPhone. Just by comparison, this is just uh, 40 years of progress, but looks like a thousand years of progress. So it's just huge. I really enjoyed it. So I hope somebody else will do it as much as I did. Nice. Super cool. All right. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up. 
Thank you for coming, uh, Andre. Yeah, thanks for having me here. It was a very uh, unusual experience for me, but I hope it, it was a, it, at least a bit interesting for you. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, I, th- I thought it was fun. Thanks for coming, Alex. Um, let's go ahead and wrap up. We'll have another one next week. And in the meantime, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.